Our reading today is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. We're working our way through the parables. There are a few left, not a, not a lot, unless you consider the Gospel of John. Now, some say the Gospel of John doesn't have any parables, but it's full of parables. Uh, so, if I were going to stay another year, I'd probably just finish John. But we're doing the parables certainly in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and doing our best to work through chronologically as they appeared in the life of Jesus, as best as we can tell. Today, beginning at verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell, where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember, that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this, his most holy and infallible word. For any visitor just then, that was a joke. We've reached the place that the parable for today is... The rich man in Lazarus, 
We'll pass over the question whether it's a parable or if it's history. Uh, just to say that if it is history, it is what has happened already. If it is a parable, which I believe to be the case, it is what will happen. We have here a picture of a loser in life and a winner in death. Lazarus, not exactly one that would be called a success in life. We're told that he was laid at a gate of a rich man, covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. And so we don't know if he had a family, who his parents were, if he had brothers or sisters. He wasn't much to look at. I don't think he would have made the cover of a fashion magazine. His only company that we know of was dogs, probably not French poodles or corgis, stray dogs, but he probably welcomed them. They kept him company, gave him physical relief. The dogs came and licked his sores. Apparently everybody knew his name. The rich man knew his name. It says so in verse 24. When the rich man is in hell, he says, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus. I wonder how many times the rich man spoke to Lazarus. But he's thinking about him now. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because... I'm in agony in this fire. Probably everybody knew Lazarus' name. He was a permanent fixture there. A person like this is usually referred to by his first name. A state so low, he probably didn't even indulge in fantasy. Because people normally fantasize a possibility, even if it is remote. But Lazarus didn't fantasize about which beautiful girl would take notice of him. He didn't fantasize wearing fine clothes, shopping at Harrods or even Marks and Spencers. He knew his earthly status was fixed and unchanged. He had no qualifications for a good job, probably couldn't pass a standard medical examination. He was covered with sores. His occupation was begging. No great loss of pride by now. He gave up the hope of any autonomy, self-respect years ago. When do you suppose it happened? Well, perhaps he dropped out of school. Perhaps when his girlfriend jilted him. Perhaps uh, his parents died when he was young and he was thrust out into the world. Dr. Clyde Naramore says every person is worth understanding. He was a beggar. No future. His permanent place was at the rich man's gate. 
The authorized version said he was laid at the gate. Somebody must have brought him there and picked him up at the end of the day. The rich man's dustbin provided Lazarus with his daily diet. He longed, we're told, to eat the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. And perhaps the rich man, we don't know his name, dropped him a coin once in a while. Well, that's what I mean. Lazarus was a loser. A loser in life. But one day Lazarus died. Not likely that his obituary was carried in the Times or among death notices of major newspapers. It's not likely that his death occupied uh, conversations inside the rich man's house. Possibly there was the off-handed comment, wonder who will be rummaging through the dustbin now. Or perhaps someone says, perhaps there won't be all those dogs hanging around. The rich man would not miss Lazarus. It's not likely many mourned his passing at his funeral, if he had a funeral. We don't know how he spent his last day. We don't know how he spent his last hour or who saw him or what he saw just before he died. But what we do know is what Lazarus saw the moment he breathed his last breath. He saw angels. He witnessed a sight more magnificent, more lovely than the rich man's gate. More beautiful than all the jet setters that would come in and out of the rich man's house. And these angels, they weren't coming along to drop a coin to Lazarus. These were angels coming for him. His first inclination may have been to reach out a hand because that was his habit. And perhaps when he saw them, he expected them to rush on by. But they didn't. They were coming for him. He may have been self-conscious to think, who are you coming for? And then he began to realize they were coming for him. I looked over Jordan, and what did I see? Coming for to carry me home, a band of angels coming after me. Coming for to carry me home. Sing it with me. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry Never had Lazarus known such treatment, such attention, 
such honor, he'd probably never seen an angel. But they put him at ease. Don't worry. It's okay. They treated Lazarus with a dignity and respect that even the rich man never got inside that home of his. And they treated Lazarus with a dignity and respect that these angels would never receive. They regarded themselves as being honored to have the privilege of escorting Lazarus to Abraham's side. This was a nickname for where Jesus is now. Sometimes it's called paradise. The immediate presence of God, it meant the end of suffering, the end of pain, the end of indignity. It was all over. A loser in life, but a winner in death. By the way, sometime later, the rich man died. He was buried. Doesn't say Lazarus was buried. Who knows what they did with his body? The rich man died and was buried. He may have had a stately funeral, for all I know. May have been in the equivalent of Westminster Abbey or a great cathedral. Dignitaries may have been present. Ambassadors may have been present. Journalists may have been present. Perhaps a famous clergyman read an eloquent sermon. Perhaps many important people made statements about him. They would know his name. They would talk about his vast influence, his unusual talents. He may have had a bronze coffin. But there was one thing the mourners at this ornate funeral wouldn't have known or believed. Because in verse 23 it says, In hell he lift up his eyes. In hell, where he was in torment, in hell, he looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. And so while statements were being made about this rich man at the moment, the rich man couldn't have cared about it, wouldn't have known he was in hell. Do you know where you will go when you die? Do you know for sure that if you were to die today that you would go to heaven, do you? Do you realize that when 6,000 people were suddenly killed four weeks ago, that they either went to heaven or hell. In hell. In hell. Now, why is this parable so important? 
Well, now, don't forget that the context goes back to chapter 15, where the Pharisees accused Jesus of sitting with sinners. And Jesus said, you got that right, and then gave one parable after another just to show why he did. But then the parable we looked at the last couple of weeks, uh, the meaning changes just a little bit. He starts talking about uh, wealth and a rich man, a landowner. And so now the theme of this rich man continues, uh, but the subsidiary theme, or you could say the main theme, is that God is for the underdog. So, why is this parable important? Well, reason number one, it is better to be a winner in death than a winner in life, and then fail in death. You're a happy person? Got a good life? Making a little bit of money? Are you worried about the stock market right now? Getting ready to buy a gas mask? Incidentally, I got my jabs this week for all kinds of stuff. Tried to get a smallpox vaccination while I was there. I thought, well, why not? They don't have them, so save your trouble going for that. Better to be a winner in death. Now, why is this so important? Because there are two destinies, heaven or hell. There's no in-between. You see, I thought we went to purgatory. Wish that were true. If there were a purgatory, the Bible would have taught it. Anything that important, the Bible wouldn't have left out. For people that would just rest everything on a tradition that, that came up just a few hundred years ago because it sounds better, don't do it. I ask you again, do you know for sure if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? Two destinies, heaven or hell. And eternity lasts a long time. Do you know how long? I don't understand this. This is not my idea. But I think of the last hymn when we sing Amazing Grace, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, even after 10,000 years, we have no less days to follow, to sing God's praise than the first day we've begun. Do you know for sure? If you were to die today, would you go to heaven? If you don't know for sure, I would think common sense would make you want to be sure before you leave these premises. Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Another reason this is important, we have here the ingredients to know how to get to heaven. All the ingredients are contained here in this parable. I realize you can't make any parable stand on all four legs, but there's enough here. It's pretty obvious. Another reason it's important is that if you want to know how to go to hell, just look at this account. You say, well, I'm not rich, so I'm in real good shape. 
I can tell you, you can be rich and go to heaven. You can be poor and go to hell. You can have good health all your life and go to heaven and have bad health all your life and go to hell. That's not the issue. We're going to look at this. This parable also shows how people pray in hell. Now, for 25 years, I've tried to get people to pray. About every six months, I'll mention the 445 prayer meeting, and we have ten more that day. Back to usual the following week. You know where the greatest prayer meeting is going on? And this is not funny. In hell. They're praying. Are they ever praying? Some years ago, I was in Manchester. Notice where I was staying man's bookshelves. There was a, a book there by the founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth. I said, I never saw this book before. It seems to be out of print. It's called God's Hell. And I began to read it. And he told what he said the first time the Salvation Army had a graduating class. After two years, the first graduating class of the Salvation Army where they trained their officers. William Booth said, brothers and sisters, I feel that perhaps I should apologize for having to keep you here for two years to teach you how to be a soul winner. He said it would have been better if you could spend five minutes in hell. And then we could turn you loose. This is not my idea. The German philosopher Feuerbach said that God is nothing more than man's projection upon the backdrop of the universe. He says man wants to believe that there's a heaven out there. We want to believe that we're going to be taken care of when we die, and so we project heaven on the backdrop of the universe. We project God on the backdrop of the universe. This is what we want. Given that kind of reasoning, who would have thought of hell? This is not my teaching. This is the teaching I like least in the Bible. But you see, I'm an ambassador. I'm an ambassador for Christ. And any ambassador worth his salt defends his country's position. He may personally not understand it all, but he sticks to his guns. This is the position. And that's where I am. I don't understand this. But this is the position, and I represent the government of His Majesty King Jesus. And Jesus had more to say about hell than anybody else. You say, I believe in heaven, but I don't believe in hell. If there's no hell, there's no heaven. You have no right to believe in heaven, except the Bible gives you that right. But the same Bible that gives you the right to believe in heaven has more to say about hell than about heaven. 
Now, the reason this is important is because it shows the only proof of all that I'm saying here is the Bible. Would you believe it? The Bible. You see, the rich man who went to hell, when he realized he wasn't going to get out, he said, well, look, could I just have one concession, one request? I've got, I've got five brothers, and whatever sibling rivalry may have been between them. He said, I, I don't want them to come here. Please, could you just send Lazarus to them? They will know who Lazarus is, and they will know that Lazarus died. And if Lazarus is, Lazarus is raised from the dead, and they go and tell my brothers about this place, then they, they, they won't come here. They'll do what they have to do to avoid it. You don't understand my brothers. They don't believe there is a hell. Please, at least send Lazarus to them, because then they will believe it because he'll be raised from the dead. The word came back, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So why is this an important parable? Because when people die, they go straight to heaven or to hell. It's called paradise. It's called Hades. There are many names for the intermediate state. Immediately. When you're saved, you die, you go to be with the Lord right then. Many great stories of saints who died. Just as they were dying, they said, well, look, it's glory, it's glory. Jonathan Edwards was at the deathbed of David Brainerd, who would have been his son-in-law had he lived. And he said, the moment Brainerd died, he said, the glory of the Lord just came in the room and went up. And Brainerd was gone. Louise and I got a letter from Gertrude Preston about 16, 17 years ago. Her husband, Oscar, who used to go fishing with me all the time, died. They used to talk about their four-year-old little boy that died. And Oscar had been in a coma for days. And then he came out of the coma just long enough and said, Gertrude, I see Jesus, and look who's with Jesus. He called the name of the little boy, and he died. Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It means instantly to go with the Lord. It's an intermediate state. Judgment comes down the road, and I don't have time to go into all the intricacies. That's God's problem anyway. But do you know for sure? If you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And if this passage teaches anything else, it shows that hell is a place of conscious punishment, not annihilation. That's the reason for this phrase. Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. The fire did not annihilate the rich man. 
Well, there's a lot of things we can see about this parable. And I want to focus on the subject of hell. I don't preach on hell every week. I preach on hell a little bit. I could be wrong, but I have reason to believe I preach on hell more than most. In fact, to find somebody else that believes in hell is like looking for a needle in a haystack. First, the place of hell. You see, this passage shows that both heaven and hell are places. They exist. What I mean by that is we're not talking about a state of mind. I've had people say to me, oh, I believe in hell. This is it. Hell on earth. And, you know, it's also true. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, wrote a uh, a treatise called Heaven on Earth. And it was talking about what God will give the Christian a little bit of heaven to go to heaven in. True. But if you think this is hell on earth, listen, it may be. I'm sorry. God will give to someone here who could prevent it all, but too proud to do it, a little bit of hell to go to hell in. This is not hell. They may have thought it in New York a month ago, but that's not hell. You may have gone through an awful lot of suffering. That's not hell. You say, you don't know what I'm having to live with at home, but that's not hell. This is hell. In hell. He lifted up his eyes. He was in torment. The place of hell. This passage tells, uh, talks about preparation for hell. How, how do you prepare for hell? The answer is live in the present. He just lived in luxury every day. Oh, then I'm okay. I don't live in luxury. But you would if you could. You'd like to. You see, the reason you spend money for the lottery, you, that's the way you'd like to live. The way to prepare for hell is just to live to suit yourself. Do your own thing. Show contempt for those going to heaven. Laugh at them. You're aware of them, but... You laugh at them. So much aware of them that when the chips are down, that's who you might turn to. We never will forget a man who lived across the street from us, where we lived, on the other side of Victoria Street. Came by on a Saturday morning on a pilot light ministry and says, You're Dr. Kendall, aren't you? I said, yeah, he said, You live you live across the street from me. I said, really? Uh, who are you? He told me. And I would talk to him about the Lord. And uh, he, he would kind of scoff at me. But one day he came into an evening service that made no impact on him that it could tell. And I'd run him to, to him in the streets. and He was getting ready to go to South America where he had the business there. And I said, are you ready to meet God? Well... 
<laughs> I know you believe things like that. But then he became deathly ill, and who do you suppose he sent for? He wrote me a note. Would I pray for him? I preached his funeral. I do not know that he was saved. Because I wasn't able to go. I was away. Ignore those with this message. And that's how to go to hell. Third prayer in hell. I said a moment ago, that's where they're praying. Let me tell you, they're praying in hell like they should have done on earth. You know what they're asking God for? Mercy. Mercy. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. That's the way the NIV translates the same word. Authorized version says mercy. What is mercy? It's what you ask for when you've got no bargaining power. You use any other word in the dictionary. You say, would you do me a favor and then I'll pay you back one day. Or you might say, well, you owe me one. But when you're at rock bottom and there's no way to bargain, you pray for mercy. That's the way they are in hell. They pray for mercy. And so if you want to know how to be saved, even as you sit in your seat, say, God, have mercy on me. Don't even think of looking to your good works. Don't even think about saying, well, I've been baptized. Don't even think about any good thing you've done because you'll go to hell. But those who ask for mercy are the ones that go to heaven. When's the last time you ever asked God for mercy? What you're asking for is to save you because Jesus died for you on the cross. Not because you've got anything coming to you. So what they pray in hell is what you should pray now. And so we have in this text prevention of hell. You know what that is? That means to become a beggar now. My old friend Rolf Barnett, who is now in heaven, used to preach a sermon called Only Beggars Will Be Saved. Only Beggars Will Be Saved. You see, the trouble with many people who profess to be Christians, they, they think if you put them under a lie detector, they really think they're doing God some kind of a favor. If they walk forward or they do something, some of you probably put some money in the collection bag and you kind of thought, well, God, I hope you notice him. I'm giving you points. The way to avoid going to hell is to become a beggar. Heaven is a place where only beggars will be found. A good example is a leper who, after Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount came to him on bended knee and said, Lord, if you will, 
You can make me clean. No snapping of the finger. Oh, this is what you've got to do for me. Lord, if you will, because we're like lepers. And lepers in that day, they were the scum of the earth and people avoided them. And this leper knew his place. He's saying, Lord, you don't have to. I know you don't have to. But would you? Please, if you will. That's the way to be saved. This passage talks about the punishment of hell. You see, in hell, you will have all of your senses. Look at verse 24. He called on him. Have pity on me. He called to him and says, let him dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. It's just Jesus' way of saying you have your senses. You can feel, touch, hear, see. You will have your memory in hell. Son, remember, said Abraham, in your lifetime you receive your good things. And Lazarus received bad things. You do remember this, don't you? But now he is comforted. Here, you're in agony. End of story. And if only one could take out memory, one of the things that will make hell hell is your memory. If only you could forget it. Psychologists say we don't forget anything. The punishment of hell. What's the purpose of hell? The purpose of hell, summed up in one word, it's to punish. Now, there are various kinds of judgment. There's what I sometimes call gracious judgment. That's when God steps in, and it's pretty awful, but it's lined with grace because God's giving you a hint. You can do something about it. It's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call. But there's retributive judgment. That's no wake-up call. It's too late. It's over. You keep thinking, oh, no, this can't be the end. Uh, uh, no, no, this is not the end, surely. And do you know, he goes on, beside all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. So we're talking now about the perpetuity of hell. No one can rescue you, however much they may want to, and you can never get out. So that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. But there is a great crossover you can make right now. You can cross over from death into life. God punishes sin two ways. The blood of Jesus or the fires of hell. The fires of hell never satisfy the justice of God, ever. And they keep burning. Reaching out for justice, but they never make it. 
The wonderful news is that 2,000 years ago, on that Good Friday, when the blood was dripping from his head, his hands, his feet, one drop of the blood of Jesus washes away all. Totally satisfies God's justice. I close with this, the proof of hell. Well, the only authority is the Bible. You're looking for proof, aren't you? You remember that verse back in chapter 16, verse 10? Whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much. Authorized version says that who, he who is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. There's so many ways that verse can be interpreted. And what it means is, is the Bible is the only basis. If you believe the Bible, that which is least, then you can be trusted with going to heaven. You don't believe the Bible, you're unjust in that which is least. Then don't say that if the real were to come, then you would believe. You see, this is the way it is. God gives you his word. I'm sorry, but that's the way it is. God does you a singular favor by not answering all your questions because that way you can believe and just trust his word. Heaven is made up of those who just believe his word. Well, why would ever anybody believe in the Bible? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. And I'm hoping that as I speak, one person will say, Ah, oh, I needed that. It's the Holy Spirit. It won't be your great intellect, I can tell you that. It won't be reading philosophy. It's the Holy Spirit. Calvin called it the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. That's how we know the Bible is true. And so he says, well, look here. If Lazarus is raised from the dead and he goes to my five brothers, then they'll believe. Wrong, says Abraham. Wrong. They've got the Bible. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Oh, that's not enough. They don't believe the Bible. Well, I'm sorry. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if one rises from the dead. I've been saying that we don't know the rich man's name. There's a legend, Dives. We don't know. But we know the name of the one who went to heaven. And I believe I read in Isaiah verse 40, chapter 43, verse 1. This is what the Lord says who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel. Fear not, I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. God knows your name. The disciples one day said, Lord, did you know that the demons are subject to your name? Jesus said, you're excited about that. Let me tell you what ought to excite you. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Is your name written there on the page wide and fair in the book of God's kingdom? Is your name written there? Do you know for sure if you were to die today, would you go to heaven, do you? Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, perhaps this is the most important message I've delivered from this pulpit, at least for somebody. We cannot believe except by your Spirit. We cannot repent except by your Spirit. And when you grant us repentance, we're ever so grateful. And so, Father, apply this word by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.